Thanks, Jim. I want us to look at this scripture again. Um, it probably is easiest if you look at it in your bulletin so it's all on one page. But this scripture is part of a discourse that the writer of John has placed near the end of Jesus' life. In fact, he has placed it as part of the Last Supper. In chapters 14, 15, and 16, Jesus is talking directly to his disciples. But in chapter 17, however, the switches, it switches to a prayer that Jesus is praying first on behalf of his disciples. And then as we go into today's scripture, expanding that prayer to also include those in the future who come to believe. You know, he said, I ask not only on behalf of these, my disciples, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, the future believers, you and me. Now, as Jim was reading this, did you notice several phrases were repeated over and over again? The phrases like at, at the second, actually the end of the first sentence, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. And then in the next section, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be completely one. And then the reason that they should be one is included in all these phrases that begin with, so that. They, we may be one also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. They may be completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And the very end, so that love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, Scholars will tell us, you know, sometimes I just think these people just sat and wrote. You know, but scholars will tell us there is literary form to the Gospels. There are reasons the authors do what they do. And they say this chapter 17 is a literary practice that was, was very current in that time to sum up everything you've written about before in the form of a prayer or poem or something like that. And if you want to go back and really study the book of John, you will find in chapter 17 all of the themes that John introduced throughout the book right here in this chapter. We're not going to go into that, um, but I really encourage you to go home and look at that and see if you can recognize some of the other themes in this chapter. For our purposes today, we're going to focus on the theme that they may all be one as we are one. And if you do look through John, you're going to find Jesus saying over and over again things like, I am in the Father, the Father is in me, or the one who sees me sees the Father, or the one who knows me knows the Father. The Father and I are one, and then all of the ones in our scripture today. So in God's mathematical terms, one plus one equals one. If we see Jesus, we see God. Jesus plus God equals one, God. The 12 disciples plus one 
plus Jesus equals one, God, because Jesus is in God. And Jesus came so that, you remember the so that's? The world might know God. So that the world might see the love that God has for it, and so that the world might believe. Jesus wants his followers to be one with God as he is one with God. So how are we doing? There are an estimated 2.1 billion Christians in the world today. So how well does the world know about God's love? In our world, one plus one always equals two, right? You mathematically-minded people. The sum, when you put two things together, you add them, the sum is always larger, right? Yep. <coughs> All you scientific brains out there. I did learn that much about math. It's logical. It's rational. It's a mathematical fact. The sum will always be larger than the parts, right? So how do we get what God is saying? You know, when you gave your confession of faith, when you decided to be part of God, to let God be in your life, did you see yourself as like becoming one, being part of God? Or did you see yourself more as standing right beside God? Kind of like the, the beautiful song and the, the picture and the, and the footprints in the sand that God is right here, and we can turn to God in our time of need. We can work hand in hand with God right beside us to share God's love and compassion in the world. We can listen for God to guide us in the ways that would be God's will. There's me and there's God, right? One plus one equals two. Now, I'm not saying this is not good. This is probably the way most of us live out our faith. But Jesus prayed for more for us. Besides that, thinking of Jesus and God this way opens us up for problems that I know I have personally experienced, and maybe you have recognized some too. Or there are problems that we can see in the church and in the world today because of this concept. First of all, from the beginning, we humans have strived to be our own gods. Isn't that what the serpent promised Adam and Eve in the garden? He said, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. Or some translations say, you will have the same knowledge as God. Why else did they eat that fruit? And how about a little later in Genesis, the story of the Tower of Babel? The people said, come, let us build a city and a tower that reaches up to the heavens, and then we will be famous because we can do anything. Saul was anointed by God to be the king. And yet, King Saul lost favor with God 
because he began to put his faith in his own abilities rather than trusting God. And we can just continue on down through history in the scriptures and we can find example after example, even after Jesus and even for those Christians that gave their lives, we can still find examples. Even in history, the church, for a period of time, the church gained political power and it took that power and it controlled in the name of God. But it did many things that were not God-like. The problem of seeing ourselves or the church in partnership with God is that there is always the danger of our deciding we can handle it on our own. Have you ever said something like, I got this God, I'll call on you if I need you? Maybe we haven't verbally said that, but we say it over and over again through our actions. When we fall into the trap of going through life, handling everything until we bump into problems and find ourselves in over our heads, and only then do we remember God is right here and we turn to him to get us out of trouble. Not only do we go along not calling upon God, but sometimes we humans have actually been known to take over parts of God's job. I know, that's hard to believe. But remember, we do want to be equal with God. Have you ever laid judgment on another? Have you ever judged someone to be too sinful to be allowed to do ministry? Have you ever deemed who was worthy or not worthy to serve at this table or in church leadership? Or have you ever withheld forgiveness for those unforgivable sins? Have you even claimed to withhold redemption for some that we felt were not worthy of it? You see, I've been told that I'm not saved because I don't possess certain gifts of the Spirit. I've also been told that I should not be in ministry because I'm a woman. And when I had a troubled teen, I was told that I should quit my job because I couldn't be a youth minister. I wonder if you have felt the sting of judgment. But I have to admit to you that I am guilty of some myself. What about you? You see, when we consider ourselves in partnership, when we consider ourselves separate but together, it's very easy to get mixed up over whether it's me or it's God. And it's, it's just that Jesus prayed for so much more for us, something much greater than a partnership. 
The message translation, one of my favorite translations today, puts part of our scripture this way. The goal is for all of them to become one heart and one mind. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so they might be one heart and mind with us. Then the world might believe you, that you in fact sent me. The same glory you gave me, I gave them, so that they'll be as unified and together as we are, I in them and you in me. Then they'll be mature in this oneness and give the godless world evidence that you sent me and loved them in the way you've loved me. How can the world see God's love through us? Especially when we don't even express God's love with one another. So how do we get there? How do we go from acting like we're in partnership with God to being drawn into the very heart of God, to be living as one, not two? First of all, I think we have to know God. How do we know God? How do we become one if we don't know God? In John 14, Jesus said, if you know me, you know the Father. So many times in the Gospels, Jesus was asked or told, just show us God. If you show us God, then we'll believe. And each time Jesus replied that he had been showing them God all along by his very life because he abided in God and God abided in him. God didn't just send Jesus down to redeem us by his death. Jesus also came that we might intimately know God. That we might know the God who wants to be in relationship with us. The answer to how can we know God is looking at how Jesus lived, specifically how Jesus lived in relationship with others and in relationship to God. If we really want to get to know someone, what do we do? Don't we spend time with that person? Don't we talk and visit together or we text or we're on the internet or Skyping or phoning or whatever? We go out together. We want to be with that person to get to know them, don't we? Spiritually, this is done by spending time in prayer and in the scriptures. The Bible is our main resource of how Jesus lived and what things he did and what things he said. But when we read about Jesus in scripture, it's not like reading about someone in history, like reading about Abraham Lincoln or Gandhi, for example. The reason it's not the same is because Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus is a living presence. We can read about Jesus in scripture, but we can be with him today, now, 
at this moment, we can learn from him even now. So how can we ever hope to be of one heart and mind with God if we rarely spend time with God? And second, we must recognize and accept that being one with each other and being one with God does not mean being the same. We humans are social beings. We bind together in groups. In America, we all talk about individuality and individual rights above all else, but in reality, rarely do we really want to be alone, to be the only one. We want to express our own uniqueness, but we still need others to join us to give strength to that uniqueness. In 30 years of working with teenagers, I'm constantly, still to this day, amused at those who decide they are going to rebel. And yet there's a whole subculture out there of others that are just like them rebelling together. We are most comfortable with those who are similar to us. And we are definitely uncomfortable with those who display different qualities. And I think that's mainly because we need to know where we fit in the group. A good example is looking at America in the 1800s when all those different immigrant groups were coming to America. They had a tendency to settle near others who spoke the same language and came from the same culture. In the big cities like New York and San Francisco, you have your little Italys, you have your Chinatowns, your German communities, your Latino communities. They tended to form communities that were like their language and like their culture. I happened to learn um, a couple weeks ago that I know why there's a part of Cincinnati called Over the Rhine. How many of you know this, why it is? Oh, so many of you here. Yeah, it was very interesting to me that it fits right in with this, that I did know there was a huge German contingency that settled in Cincinnati. Most of them lived in one area together, but they worked in other areas, and they had to cross a canal that was built. They had to cross over a bridge to get to their works. But when it came time to come home every night, they all crossed the same bridge back into the same community. And so they jokingly called that canal the Rhine River, which is the river in Germany. And so when they were leaving work, they were going over the Rhine to go home. Did I get it right? Is that what it is? We like to be with those who are like-minded with us. The need to fit in is stronger than the need to be an individual and stand out. And those few that manage to stand out all on their own, we label as social misfits, don't we? Our oneness is sameness. Our unity is uniformity. Look around you, just look around you in this, this room. God created us all so very different. 
And all you have to do is look out in creation. Look at all the beautiful flowers that were planted yesterday, all different and gorgeous in their own way. How can all this uniqueness be one? How can it be one? How can we be one with each other in our uniqueness? When Jesus was praying for us to be one with God, he wasn't just talking about me as an individual, but he was also talking about the church that was coming into being. He was referring to the body of Christ. One of my favorite scriptures on answering this question about how we can be unique and still be one, it was written by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, when he said things like this, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all made to drink of the one spirit. And he goes on to talk about if everyone in the body were an eye, how would the body hear? And if, if everyone in the body were a foot, how would we do? How many of you have had your tonsils removed? I was going to call you on that, Nathan. <laughs> if you looked around, Nathan, you would have seen most everybody was old with their hand raised. When I was just four years old, I had my tonsils out. My sister had hers out when she was just two. Back then, it was believed in the medical world that there was no specific need for tonsils. There was no reason for them at all. The only thing they did was hold germs and make you sick. So let's just get them out of the body so you don't have to be sick. Well, of course, by not having younger people raise their hands, we know the medical world changed their belief. And since then, they're pretty reluctant to remove tonsils or any other body part, correct? Because they learned that every part of our body has some purpose, whether we see it or not, and that it is very presumptuous of us to think we know which ones work and which ones don't. But likewise, God has taken the same care with Christ's body, with the church. All 2.1 billion members of the church are part of one body. And all 2.1 billion members are needed. How presumptuous of us to think otherwise. We have to know God, and we have to recognize that oneness is not sameness. And lastly, we cannot become one with God unless we get out of the way. In Matthew 16, Jesus said, those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. I don't think Jesus is talking about death here. I believe he's telling us to get our egos out of the way. As long as we hang on to the self, we can never hope to have more than a partnership with God. 
we will always want to have a say in the matter. But being one does not mean being equal with God either. For there can only be one leader. Who is the head of the church? Whose body is it? Jesus, right? And who is Jesus one with? God. God is our one leader. I've said this before, and you've probably heard it. Linda Kemp Baird shared an acronym for ego that goes like this. E stands for edging. G stands for God. O stands for out. Edging God out. Whenever ego is present, God is absent. The two cannot coexist in the same body, whether that's my body, your body, or the body of Christ. So much of the language I hear around churches today are I-centered. I don't like how they do fill in the blank. I don't like how they do the music. I don't like the music. I don't like worship. I don't like how they do communion. I don't like Sunday school. I think we should do. I want. I need. Since when is the body of Christ about me? As our congregation goes through these jubilee sessions with Reverend Beth, it is my prayer that as we reassess and we look at our church ministries, that we do it through God's eyes, not our own. That it be about God's business, not our interpretation of that. For Jesus' prayer that we would be one with God as Jesus and God are one with each other, we individually and collectively must get out of God's way. Our job is simply to be in relationship with God and to make ourselves available to God. When we do that, God can use us for the betterment of the body so that the body can be about the business of showing God's love to a world that desperately needs it. When God's spirit is active in our lives, then God's spirit is also active through our lives. Only then will one plus one equal one. Amen. We come to that time in the service that if you haven't joined the body, if you haven't made that commitment to come into the body and be one with the body and with God, this is an opportunity, if God is prodding your heart, for you to come do that. If you're not comfortable coming forward, talk to me after the service, and we'll talk about it. But it's also a wonderful opportunity for all of us to reassess where we are in the body of Christ. And whether we are in partnership or are we really within that body. 
So let's think of that together as we sing our hymn of invitation. Please stand and join me.